Hello and welcome to the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. Uh, my name is Federico Ast, I'm CEO at Cleros, and thank you for joining us. My co-host today is Damian Malvasic. Uh, how are you today, Damian? Feeling absolutely excellent as always. Really looking forward to our guest Mariano Conti for him to explain to me finally what farming means because I still don't know and I feel like the stupid guy in the room. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, of course, our guest today is Mariano Conti, who is an expert in generalized finance. And yeah, hopefully he explains to, to all of us uh, how this works. And um, Hello, Mariano. How are you? Hi, I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Good. Let me let me tell you a bit about Mariano. Uh, Mariano Conti was born in Argentina, uh, but moved to Mexico when he was six. Uh, then he studied computer science at the Tech of Monterrey uh, from 1999 to 2006, and then computer graphics in Thailand. I didn't know that, so you will have to explain that to me later. Uh, and he started his, his career uh, in the telecommunications industry and then joined MakerDAO in 2016 as a developer and until recently held the position of head of oracles and smart contracts. Um, so, Mariano, uh, thank you very much for being with us today. Um, and let me uh, ask you uh, a question I want to know. It's like, what was your first computer? Oh, it was either, I think it was either an IBM PC in like 87 or, you know, a PC compatible, as they called them at the time. Uh, how did you get interested in computer like science? How, tell me about those early years uh, that took you to yeah to, to go into into technology and yeah and what do you, you took you to do what you do today sure well um my dad he was um he's not well yeah he studied engineering and also uh, accounting so he studied both and he was the one who got you know pcs into people's desks uh, where he worked back in the late 80s and he managed to bring one home and so he he sat me in front of a computer and I never uh, uh, I found my place you know so I uh, I've been using them for 30 some years it's interesting for me because pretty much everybody that we that we you know speak with in the space sort of has a sort of a personal uh, adventure with with computers and starting with computers. What was the thing that actually drew you to computer science? What was your your motivation? I mean, of course, there must have been sort of you know when when in house you have somebody who is of a certain profession, you get driven towards that. But is is there something that that you personally attach? What was the driving force behind getting into computer science for you? Um, probably just wanted to get better at programming. So, uh, you know, I, there, there was not that much around on the internet as there is today, you know, the, the, just a sheer amount of tutorials and websites. And so I was mostly self-taught until I was 18 years old. I didn't have any courses in, in high school. So it was mostly just wanting to get better at programming. And that was pretty much it. I, I wanted to make my own software, make my own games. Did uh, you make uh, a, a game for like yourself? I, I've done small prototypes, like nothing big. Uh, as usual, I, I take a weekend, I do something, and then I, I, I forget about it. Plus, I'm, I'm a really bad uh, designer and you know artist. So <laughs> that always brings me down. 
<laughs> Indeed. And can you tell me one thing that I'm very interested in is, okay, so you were, you were pretty deep in computer science at first, and then in 2016, you sort of moved on to, you know, working in blockchain. Um, how did you get into it? How did you start in MakerDAO? It was... So in 2014, I was just uh, working at a digital agency doing, you know, websites and mobile apps. And one of the things here in Argentina is that there's, there was, and there are now again, very strict capital controls. And I had a deal with my boss that he would pay me part of my salary in dollars. But he told me to open up a bank account in Miami and, you know, this is... <laughs> This is like something common people uh, people in Argentina do uh, to you know escape the the government's hands, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't fly to Miami, so um, my salary was accumulating. He wasn't paying me, and until he said I can pay you in Bitcoin. So I researched and I said, yeah, sure, this sounds fine. So he started paying me in Bitcoin in 2014, and. <clears throat> We started researching more and more, and in 2015, we found Ethereum. So we went all in on, on Ethereum, but just as holders. And while we were looking for a project to work on, and Maker came around in 2016. So that was that was the jump from just holding Ethereum to working on Ethereum. You know, I, I feel like I can really connect to this, this story. Of, of course, people know I am from Argentina. And... <laughs> My interest in blockchain also came from the, the same side of, yeah, you live in a country with capital controls um, and, uh, yeah, you can't really move money where you want and you can't pay anyone because there is uh, all these, like, rules about how you can send or receive money. And if you receive money, they if you're paid in a foreign <laughs> currency, it, it's not a very good business to receive money in Argentina because you lose lots of that. So... um I I want you like Mariano to to well to explain a bit um, about what you spoke at Osaka. So Mariano, for those who don't know, he he did an extraordinary uh, talk at the Osaka DevCon conference where he explained uh, how he could live in Argentina with fifty percent inflation. And let me tell you a bit about about the the backstory. So he was I I met him at the some corridor of the conference. And, uh, yeah, at first he was doing like 30%. And then I met him again and he was preparing his, his PowerPoint slides. And, uh, and yeah, no, now it's 40%. And in the end, it, it ended up being like 50%. Um, <laughs> so, you know, lots of people who, who listen to us, so they have no idea what's like living like this. So tell, tell people a bit about what's living in a country with 50% inflation. Um, yeah, how can crypto help these, these people? Of course, it's, so it's crazy. It's um, living in Mexico for so, so long. When I came back to, to Buenos Aires, it was, a, it was such a culture shock. You know, every week you go to the store and prices are different. Nothing is, uh, you know, restaurant menus are, the prices are, <laughs> are written in pencil sometimes, or, you know, you find that they're always uh, scratching them out and changing them because, because, some things change uh, every week or every month. They always go up, right? And, and and yeah, for me it was it was so weird. And people that do not have access, you know, to money markets or they just get paid in pesos, 
it's always a race to try to lose as little as possible. Like mm-hmm. there, there are not a lot of people, especially you know working class people who who end up saving money. It's just a race to see how much <laughs> you you can you can not lose right in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, my talk was you know talking about cryptocurrencies and the fact that even with the the volatility, it was more often than not you were better protected with uh with a cryptocurrency that with argentine pesos and then you know me being drawn to MakerDAO and a stable coin meant that that you could get the both uh the best of both worlds right it's uh an asset pegged to the u.s dollar or trying to be pegged <laughs> as much as possible to the u.s dollar um which is something that argentinians value extremely and you know with the power and and uh all the good things of a, of a cryptocurrency. So that was, that was the main idea behind the talk. And I know so many people now that, that, yeah, they, they try to earn a salary in crypto. They try to pay the rent in crypto. They're, uh, you know, getting more people into it. And, and yeah, it's been, it's been really great to watch. Um, you know, um, you get lots of people, especially when I, talk to some people from the US or Europe like they they people don't see um what is in many cases what is the use case of of crypto you know and they should come to Argentina or to lots of emerging economies around the world where like financial access is like z- zero you know uh, um there are so many restrictions and people can't like uh, uh, move money and they can't receive payments from customers in uh, abroad if you are in argentina for example and you want to you can learn how to program computers through like coursera or, or any you know, youtube videos and then the frustrating part is that um you don't get the chance to then sell your services abroad because you can't be paid because of so many restrictions and um it's like so so unfair and people so of course if you're in the the US, like you are used to, to PayPal. Uh, mm. and so they don't see why, why would I switch to crypto? Uh, if I have PayPal, well, but you know, <laughs> many countries in the world, like are emerging economies with this type mm. of, uh, of, um, yeah, of restrictions. And, uh, and this is our everyday life. It is not like, uh, uh this is everyday life of like people like us in the, in the everyday people, you know, <laughs> That's why I, I usually say that that we play in hard mode. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah, it is. It is absolutely true. You know, it's it's a similar situation in Serbia. I think that PayPal started working in Serbia just for receiving funds from abroad around a year and a half ago, and I think it was around three months ago or something like that, or maybe a little bit more that you can now send money via PayPal, but the procedures are so complicated and it's so uh, immensely difficult to do it. The people just, you know, do it as little as possible. It is, it is truly difficult. And I think that what Mariano pointed out is when you don't have access to money markets as well, which is the case for most of our economies, it's just all, it's, it's really playing, playing life on, on hard mode, like truly living from month to month and paycheck to paycheck. But this is where I would sort of create, use this as, as a sort of an innuendo to, to my next question, which is, 
you know, a part of our audience is is unfamiliar, let's say, with the entire concept of decentralized finance. And I think that, you know, it would be extremely interesting to hear from you how you would uh, define decentralized finance and these new fin- emerging financial instruments regarding yield farming. Uh, well, so in a couple of, of sentences only. Now, yeah, you go ahead. And we know it's difficult. <laughs> we know it's hard. No, uh, well, there's been you know there's been yield farming. It's been called different things. You know, generalized mining. Uh, right now, I think if if I would describe yield farming is essentially a way to get money on top of your money on top of your money. That's <laughs> How, how I would call it, there are services in decentralized finance that, um, you know, are either providing tokens or, um, lo- uh, you know, money markets where you can get some interest uh, on your capital. And what everybody's doing is maximizing that by taking what one protocol gives you and putting it in another and then wrapping it and putting it in another. And, you know, it's becoming a bit of a race to see uh you know how much how much you can get uh you know how uh, from from starting capital and my thinking is this is probably unsustainable in the long term but in the short to medium term it's it's completely doable and it's also making defi interesting it's um it allowed projects to play with what is now being called fair launches you know no, no VC money involved. Just uh, you know, give ownership of of your uh, of your protocol or your project to the community via this. Exactly, just putting in capital and receiving a token in return. It's also marked the return of tokens. Uh, like I remember, 2016, 2017, it was put a token on everything. Then 2018, 2019, it was no, no. Our project does not use a token, and now 2020 is back to tokens again, right? If you don't have one, then. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Um, um, tell t- 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 a bit about um, what you mentioned something about fair launches. What, what's a fair launch is actually? Uh, let's take you know the project that kind of started this whole craziness, the the wire protocol. Um, so one day, it was decided. Okay, this is. There's a protocol that is handling a lot of money and there is only one account, you know, um, that can do everything. So let's create a, uh, let's create some governance and a DAO and a token that, uh, the holders will decide what happens with, with the protocol. And, um, you know, 30,000 tokens were going to be minted in a week and anybody could put in some capital and they would be, uh, they would be creating, uh, you know, minting these tokens for themselves. Uh, of course, it's still a, a whales game. You know, whoever got in first and with the most amount of money ended up getting the most. But um, it was fair in that nobody could get in before anybody else. It's like there was no pre-mine, there was no pre-sale, uh, things like that. And and it's become incredibly popular. And you know, Yam. The, the YAM protocol replicated that uh, with more tokens. So people from different parts of the DeFi community, possibly, you know, holders of different tokens could uh, could come in and, and have access 
uh, to the YAM token as well by providing liquidity. Uh, sorry, by yeah, by locking up capital, and that's essentially the idea. There, there's been now there's talk of you know fair launch capital, which is like a group of people that will. Um, you know, fund developers if they start a project using this fair launch idea. Because to be completely fair launch, from what I understand, it's like you don't even have a dev fund. You just work on something and then you can uh, you can get in and try to get tokens the way everybody else does. But uh, there is no pre-allocation to a developer. So the idea of fair launch is like giving them the tools to to launch something and then if the community in the future says, okay, we will reward the dev team, then that's their prerogative, but it's not like a, an imposition. Mm-hmm. And this is an extremely interesting topic. Also, on a sort of a humorous side, we had a very interesting conversation last night with one of our community members who mentioned because she's an arbitrator, we were discussing, you know, sushi at one point during our community call, and she stopped us and said, uh, "Excuse me, did somebody mention sushi? And what does sushi have to do with crypto?" And of course, it was it was it was uh, 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 a huge a huge laugh ensued. And I wanted to ask you exactly about what happened. If you can explain to us what happened with with regards to sushi and sushi swap, and what is it all about, and also connected to that. Uh, you know, especially regarding your your previous comment about you know fair launches and these things, how big is the space for abuses in 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 these new 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 tools, new financial instruments? All right, so let me let me start with the sushi swap. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe a bit more, there was a paper uh, on you know stealing liquidity from from other protocols, right? So forking somebody's code and then just uh doing incentives so so people would move their liquidity somewhere else and in this case it was uniswap right so uniswap um fees go to the uh, liquidity providers they get 0.3 percent of every trade and the idea of sushi swap was okay let's add a token called sushi that will not only be used for governance, but it will also uh, give you access to, I think it is 0.05% of all trades. So 0.25 goes to the liquidity providers and 0.05 to um, whoever holds sushi. And what they did was uh, they created a website and some smart contracts and you uh, you would put your Uniswap liquidity tokens there and you would be collecting sushi. And after two weeks, there was a migration event where all of the Uniswap uh, liquidity provider tokens became sushi liquidity provider tokens. And I think at the top, there was like $1.2 billion worth of value in sushi swap and two thirds of that. So like 800 million, they uh, it switched to... Uh, to sushi swap, but one interesting thing is that not not a lot of uh, old liquidity switched. So there was not there was like four hundred million, three hundred fifty million liquidity in Uniswap, and then there was this whole influx uh, because of the incentive of the sushi token. And then most of what migrated was uh, liquidity 
what's like new capital, right? So now you have two different protocols. Well, they're mostly the same protocol, but they're they're two different sets of smart contracts fighting for liquidity. And Sushi uh, is still incentivizing, you know, uh, via the the Sushi token. So it was it was an amazing experiment. I I told people like we're watching, you know, the DAO is getting uh, drained or. I accidentally killed it or, you know, those type of events. I think yesterday was, was one to remember. Mm. So I think it's important to, 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 to stress this, like something that like one month ago didn't exist. Then in just a couple of weeks got to have like one over 1 billion in assets. That's, that's what you're saying. Yeah. And I didn't even mention you know the uh the dev drama and <laughs> so we can talk for hours about this mm. the the anonymous in quotes developer so in this case it was not a full fair launch right there was uh 10% of all sushi went to a dev account and this anonymous developer sold everything for ether and then you know uh SBF from Alameda he uh He joined and said he was going to save the project, so he started putting in even more uh, ether into it, and now he's in control of of Sushi Swap with most likely the idea of uh, moving it to his own blockchain. So we'll see if there are enough incentives to do that. There were enough that you could, uh, you know, LP provide liquidity and earn Sushi and just dump it and make a lot of money. But it, mm. but that is one thing that is still all within the Ethereum blockchain. Mm. Once you ask people to move to another blockchain, I I want to see what happens there. Mm. It, it, I think that this is this will be an extremely interesting use case to analyze over time. You know, as as Veda mentioned, you know, project seems to be popping up and and shutting down, or just popping up and continuing to work really fast, and the space is moving at a rapid pace. But exactly because of this kind of uh, uh, you know need for for analysis of such events. Uh, could you tell us a little bit what would be the main challenges for DeFi? Uh, on its path to the mainstream, uh, there are there are many. It's still um, it is still hard to get you know to go from okay, I have I have dollars in a bank account somewhere, and uh, straight to you know now I have ether on my MetaMask and I'm interacting with a with a DAP. It hmm. it feels second nature to us, but so many people. I, for example, I tried the other day to access a <clears throat> a, a DAP from another blockchain, and I was stumped. It was like if it was my first time. It's like, oh, I I need to download an extension, and then how do I get the token? And so I understood that that is what a lot of people uh, go through right now, and then just. The more people get in, probably uh, either we're going to see more congestion, or uh, you know we're going to see lowering of all these incredible yields that that are happening. And I I'm still optimistic about everything, but uh, I feel like we're still in pretty early stages, right? I don't know if we're ready 
to have like an influx of millions of people coming and and playing in our backyard because it's still not that big. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that uh, so the the kind of um like transactions happening in the DeFi ecosystem, like this yield farming and this thing of, yeah, you have a collateral and then you borrow money and then you gamble that, with that money. Uh, so on the one hand, in the like legacy world, so that was like kind of Wall Street, high-level traders in derivatives, options and all that. <clears throat> But it also was um, uh, something that people used to do in Argentina, Um, and like middle class people, um, there were so many um, financial troubles over time that people got um, type of, um, I would say, intuitive like understanding of of how of how this works. Um, like in the 70s, there was this thing where there was it was called the the the, the, the um, tablita <laughs> cambiaria, where people where there were like pre um uh, decided like devaluations of the currency and then you had there was like a race between the inflation and the, the, the devaluation of the currency and the interest rates that the bank so you would have to make these calculations of how much i make by putting my money into the bank at the in pesos at some interest rate versus mm -hmm. how much the money will devaluate and how much in the end this is going to be into us dollars um mm. So this, this I always <laughs> I imagine Mariana when I explain this to to the team who are made of people from France, Canada, US. So they, of course, they think I'm I am crazy. I, I live in the in the <laughs> jungle, but this is like what people basically did, you know. And and so in Argentina, we have this, as I say, intuitive understanding of of, of like looking for these financial transactions, and and one other thing, like we in Argentina had. The, the experience of like banks keeping the like uh, people's money, right? Mm. So this is kind of um, a way. So it's, it's it's like all of the things we see at DeFi is things that I, in my case I, I have I have lived through this through my, in my life. So I don't know if you have some some reflection about this, Mariano, being an Argentinian as well. Yeah, it's. I feel like the the average Argentinian is because of everything you said and I've said before is a lot more informed you know and financially savvy as you know regular person somewhere else just because just because you have to be right and then um yeah I would say that there's a lot of parallel between some of the things that are going on in uh in defi and, and things that people do here every day it's like okay the government well well uh but let's say the government says you cannot buy more than x amount of dollars uh so people go and they figure out that if they travel via uh you know ferry to uruguay then they can take it out with a credit card and they can come back and sell it in the black market and make a difference uh so instead of going just themselves they grab 10 people that they know and they grab 10 credit cards and they go and they move it and they move it back. And then it's like, okay, now this month, uh, I can make so much doing this. And then the other one is, uh, you know, I better trade it to something else and put it in the bank or, or take it out and put it some, it's, 
you know, I, <laughs> uh, I, I, I am amazed at, at the things that, that people here will do too. And so, you know, even things like, and also I think this is why so many Argentinians took to, you know, Bitcoin first and then Ethereum. And now, you know, why there are so many companies that either build from here or have founders or co-founders that are Argentinian. We understand a lot of this stuff and, and, you know, the world of decentralized finance just gives us additional freedom. It's yeah, it's kind of um, you have like this experience of having done this in the anal analog world, and now you have the the yeah. So this is um, kind of you, you you can like play this game like in the big leagues, right? Because if you, an Argentinian typically couldn't um, play like you, you couldn't like trade stock on Wall Street if you were Argentinian, you know, because uh, you have to have like a lot of money and I. Uh, foreign bank account but now DeFi, so it gives you access to a lot of like credit instruments and like that of course are going to be used by spe for speculation at least in the first days but what i find fascinating about this is that it really democratizes access to to lots of things uh um yeah and uh And this is a big deal for people in Argentina and in many emerging countries uh, as, as well. Um, I, I want to ask you, Mariano, um, like, uh, what, what are you like, um, planning now that you, you just left MakerDAO as, as, after a very successful, uh, yeah, um, few years and basically building, um, much of the, of the Maker ecosystem. Yeah, what are you doing now? And yeah, what are your plans? I'm, I'm really just uh, farming <laughs> uh, as much as I can and posting on Twitter. That is fine for me for the time being. I, I don't have any, any particular plans right now to join any project or to start my own. I, I want to relax for, for a while and then see if, Uh, if something interests me or if I get, you know, that urge to start building again. But for now, it is just, uh, you know, trying to uh, take it easy after after four years. Mm. Living a simple farmer's life. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I have a question as well for Mariano here while we're slowly approaching the end of our podcast um and which is now that you have a little bit more time are you reading something interesting are you watching something interesting i i am not i uh, <laughs> i'm sorry to say that the past month and a half has been a hundred percent dedicated to to DeFi and yield farming i found it so interesting that Uh, I really put my mind and my time into it. And mm. it's really all that I've done, like mm. nonstop. Um, there were days where I didn't sleep for 48 hours. Um, <laughs> I would take like an hour nap, get back up. But the good thing is, you know, I learned so much. I got to use almost every single DeFi protocol that there is and, um, 
you know, it was trial by fire. It, I made some dumb decisions, some risky decisions <laughs> that I wouldn't recommend. Mm. But this just, uh, you know, it reignited my love for, for DeFi. Um, yeah, and Mariano, hopefully in some uh, weeks we will have River Plate again playing because the Football League may come at some point. I know. I and I was so deep into uh, into football last year, and then as soon as COVID came in and, and you know football stopped, I I stopped watching the news, the the you know the football shows, everything. So I'm I'm hoping that it comes back soon. <laughs> Good. Well, Mariano, thank you very much for for your time. It was a pleasure um, talking to you. Uh, yeah, and you have so many stories about your work, DeFi, and you know, building the future of finance. Yeah, as as an Argentinian, I should do that, that. That that should be the the irony of all this. That you know, the future of finance should come from Argentina. It's yeah, exactly. It's uh, <laughs> I find it really interesting. But uh, thank you, thank you for having me. It was it was my pleasure. Good. Uh, thank you very much, all. Um, this was Mariano Conti at the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. Uh, see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.